Players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Leyline of the Void, Dothi Voidwalker, Helm of Obedience, and many others. Battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy in the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Therabian University, and TheEpicStorm.com. Hello and welcome to episode 109 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, Stompy, Stompy, Stompy. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introduction and banter for the week, available in our supporter-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access or join as a YouTube member for the same content on YouTube instead. As always, I'm Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. Thraben U. I am Brian Koval, a.k.a. Boston Roll. And I am Brian Cook of the Epic Storm. Shout out to our recent new patrons and YouTube members, Nikolai R., from since the last episode just the one but if you want to support that patreon.com slash eternal glory or join as a youtube member and phil said 30 minutes yeah we we went over 40 this week we had some stuff to get off our chest including some pod shade and general unprofessionalism call outs in the community if you're interested in that sort of drama get in there Speaking of getting in there, if you're a, a business and you maybe want to get your your brand out there a little bit more, consider sponsoring the Eternal Glory podcast in 2024. We're currently accepting sponsorship requests, and if you want to have your product advertised to 10,000 plus listeners every other week, feel free to contact us. So today, we're talking about Stompy. We're going to start by defining the term Stompy because it's not actually a word that means anything to normal people. It also has a confusing historical definition as well. Stompy was originally used to describe aggro decks with low land counts and cheap or free spells. And I don't mean the turbo grow decks that we've talked about a lot, not cantrip decks. Honest to goodness, like mono green 10 land Stompy that used land grant to hit its first land drop and then played the game on one land with cards like Query and Ranger to pick that one land up. Vine Dryad was a free spell. Bounty of the Hunt's a free spell. That's what very, very old people think when they hear the term Stompy. And I was around for that. Tenland Stompy is one of the first, like, air quotes, real decks that I built. Somebody at my, not even my local store, my high school, my high school library just kicked my ass with one land in play the entire time. And I was like, that's really cool. I'm interested. And the deck was cheap to put together. So I did it. But at some point, a mono blue deck that used Ancient Tomb and Chrome Mox to cast Sea Drake on turn one was called Sea Stompy. And from Sea Stompy, we kind of have adopted the Ancient Tomb Chrome Mox mana base of whatever that deck was called before, and now that is what we call Stompy. It's a completely different definition than started in the Magic world, and maybe it's confusing to folks who've been around for 20 plus years playing the game, but language evolves over time, and this is where we are. So today's Stompy episode will be about Ancient Tomb Chrome Mox mana bases and what we can do with them in present day legacy. I was really looking forward to the Rogue Elephant discussion, but I guess that can be the next episode. That gets countered by Chalice of the Void and no longer makes sense in in Rogue Stomp or in Stompy decks. 
All right, so let's kind of divorce what is and isn't Stompy from each other by setting down some baseline definitions. Let's talk about aggro. If we are referring to aggro by legacy standards, we are talking about a deck that is primarily using creatures to deal combat damage to the opponent as quickly as possible. And this is something that you are almost never going to see in legacy as a true aggro deck probably is not interacting with you or is interacting with you in a very minuscule way. And in legacy, you need ways to defeat combo deck lists. And you need ways to, to beat life gain. And a dedicated aggro deck usually can't do that in Legacy. I think the best aggro deck, or at least the one that put up the most results for the longest amount of time, was Colorless Eldrazi during the time that that was a deck you could play. that That is the deck that really sticks out to me as an aggro deck, just true aggro. Not like Goblin Lackey or Nettle Sentinel like little creatures, but can pop off just straight up. I'm dealing you 20, here I come. Eldrazi is the thing that comes to mind for me. When I think of true aggro decks and legacy, I think of the 2010 to 2013 time period where Zoo was one of the best decks in the format. It was easily top three. It was that wild Nakatl strategy during the brief period of Mythal Mistup. People called it Blue Zoo. That deck stuck around for a long time, but as legacy grew, true aggro decks sort of died off and they became more prison-based, like you saw goblins with their wastelands and Rashad and ports. So that was never really a true aggro deck, but Zoo was. Yeah, shout out to uh, Matt Elias, by the way. Legacy gamer grandfather, four-digit DCI number from the Philly area. He won a Star City Open with Zoo while he was actively writing about Legacy every week for Star City. That was a great era. Good content. So note there is actually an emerging aggro deck in legacy based around the sticker goblin name sticker goblin mind goblin whichever one your preference is that just really seeks to play goblin rabble masters and squeeze and initiative creatures and there is no interaction in the deck other than four copies of lightning bolt which are primarily meant to be aimed at someone's face so it is possible to play aggro in legacy it's just exceptionally rare and that opens up an interesting question to me, which we might be in is hot dog a sandwich kind of territory here, because at my local meta, there's been someone who his deck is just mono red sneak attack. Seething song sneak attack gives you exactly enough mana to cast sneak attack, activate it, get in with an Emrakul or whatever. I always thought of that as a combo deck. Maybe that's an aggro deck. Uh, just by definition of what we just talked about, it's not disrupting you. It's just trying to go fast and reduce your life total. Yeah. But that deck also had like Blood Sun in it. So maybe it's a little prisony. Maybe just by definition in the legacy format, aggressive decks have to be slightly disruptive in some capacity. But I don't know. Is Monorite Sneak Attack an aggro deck? In the Jupiter Games era of legacy, Henry Decker was known for playing that card in those tournaments. And there was often Chalice of the Void and Trinisphere. So in my head, it was always a mix between combo and prison. But who knows? With any of these decks, you can kind of debate the definitions a little bit. And like, it's not like these are the most rigid categories in the world or anything. Like, these decks are going to exist on a spectrum. We're just trying to give you a feel of how we are conceptualizing these things. Um, for what it's worth, I view that as a combo deck list. Tell us about prison. Prison decks are seeking to completely invalidate opposing play with multiple strong hate pieces. These are your Blood Moons, Blood Sun, Chalice of the Void, Trinisphere, um, 
oftentimes ensnaring bridge was something that you would use to lock people out of the combat step as well. Yokel hops if you're a complete psycho. Absolutely. Only a madman would do that, though. Back in my day, those cards were Tangle Wire and Smokestack Phil. Oh, absolutely. Uh, here's the thing, though. Like aggro decks, prison decks are increasingly rare in Legacy. Back in the day of the SCG circuit, it was not uncommon for ensnaring bridge plays, sorry, ensnaring bridge decks to see real amounts of play. And that was a somewhat valid strategy. But now we live in the world where threats have gotten much better and answers have gotten much better. So the Merktide Regent will kill you in two to three turns in most cases. Same with an Uro. And now we have Prismatic Ending, Abrupt Decay, Boseju, Leyline Binding. We have more answers than ever to artifacts and enchantments in game one. It used to be that if you stuck a Blood Moon against someone, like, that was there forever. There were no main deck outs to that card in, in Legacy, for the most part. And now that's just not true anymore. I remember many games where an opponent had a turn one Chalice of the Void, and it was over. As, like, Rug Delver, you're done. You have four Tarmogoyfs in your deck, if you can even get to your second land to cast them without casting Ponder and Brainstorm to find that second land. It was it. Uh, I One of the... The worst, most tilting uh, moments of that I can remember, where one where I actually had to call one of my close friends and apologize afterwards. He just turned one chalice to me three times in the finals of a local legacy tournament. It's at a point in my life where I was not as comfortable with uh, myself and uh, results not meaning that I'm a good or bad person or whatever. And just sort of like stormed the fuck out of the thing. And uh, I had a very bad time because the deck could not beat it. it. It was not like, okay, now I need one of my two brazen bars that are in the main deck. It was like, goodbye, done. Like, oh, of course you had a Mox Diamond and a land and a land to discard and a Chalice of the Void versus my four Force of Wills every freaking game. And you just made it happen and I couldn't. And uh, now it's just like, yeah, fine. Okay. Prismatic ending. And it's a different world out there. When I think of prison, I can't help but think of the 2019 time period, where in my spreadsheets, I always listed them as the same deck, but there was really two different Moon Stompies. There was one that had Chandra, Torch of Defiance, and then there was, it also had Karn the Great Creator, and then there was the one with the Rabble Masters, but I always just called them Moon Stompy, but I understood one was a dedicated prison deck and the other was like a prison tempo deck, and I think that's the sort of thing Phil's going to talk about today, but if you see Karn the Great Creator, it's probably dedicated prison, and it means that your opponent's a bad person. It sure does. It sure does. If you think about, like, legacy decks right now where Ensnaring Bridge is their primary game plan, there there just aren't any competitive ones. Like, you'll still see an Ensnaring Bridge out of, like, a Karn Tutor board or something, but the days of hiding behind Bridge as, like, plan A, those are, those are gone. And that kind of leaves us with the Stompy deck lists. So we have aggro decks that are looking to get you dead, we have prison decks that are looking to prolong the game and lock out your opponent. And the Stompy decks are in the middle, where they are an aggressive deck that uses fast mana to power out hate pieces and then wants to quickly close out the game with an aggressive threat. And this is a balance between those two extremes that we were just talking about, because they're not just all in on one plan. Sometimes you open up on two threats in a row. Sometimes you open up on two lock pieces in a row. Sometimes... 
Lockpiece into threat, and it has some variety. It has some real play to it. Ancient Tomb and City of Traders, and usually some other fast mana as well, are central to the opening hands of these deck lists, but there's some real range to it. I could have swore our Tempo episode was two weeks ago. I think you missed the vote on this, Phil. We're going to have to talk about something else today. Yeah, th- this is just Tempo. Is is Tempo Stompy? <laughs> is that what Tempo means? It, it is now. Uh, though, though, if we want to chase that, that silly comparison... Uh, if you think about like super up-tempo music like uh, bluegrass, uh, people stomp along to bluegrass all the time. People stomp along to punk music all the time. Tempo, it, it's all related. That word doesn't mean anything. But yeah, what Phil was saying about uh, the, these decks, they could do A or they could do B or they could do a little of both. I've had lots of games where I keep a double sword to plowshares hand against Moon Stompy and they have Chalice into Trinosphere. I've also had games where I keep Force of Vigor versus Moon Stompy, and they have Rabble Master into Rabble Master. And sometimes you're just wrong, out of luck. Whereas the aggro versions, if you have the plow, you're good. The prison versions, if you have the Force of Vigor, you're good. Where Stompy, you don't actually know until they start casting spells what deck you have to beat. There are also combo decks that are fueled by Ancient Tomb. Because it's a busted land, and why wouldn't you want to accelerate by using it? When we're talking about like this stompy macro archetype, we're talking about things that has lock pieces and threat as its primary plan. While a combo deck is maybe having some threats or maybe having some lock pieces, but there's some engine or package that is central to the deck list that is not just like lock piece threat. And these combo decks are going to be things like your Mystic Forge or One Ring combo decks, where you are building an engine with Grim Monoliths and Voltaic Keys, or maybe something like Painter Servant, where you have an A plus B combo, but you're still accelerating things out with Ancient Tomb. Not everything that has Ancient Tomb is just going to innately be a Stompy deck list. I would not consider Painter Servant to be a Stompy deck. But I would consider the Helm Leyline decks to be Stompy decks. So I, I don't know if that's my brain or or what, or maybe like Chrome Mox is the thing that puts it over the top for me. Like I don't think Mystic Forge, One Ring, Colorless, whatever decks are are Stompy. If you could Dothy Voidwalker me or Opposition Agent me or Helm kill me, I feel like that is a Stompy deck. I don't know um, if if that deck is on Beseech the Mirror for ill-gotten gains. Is it still a Stompy deck, or is that now some sort of combo deck? And we're, we're in the weeds here. Let's put a pin in that one, and I'd like to loop back to that later, because I've got a spot in the show notes for this exact question. I do have an embarrassing confession here. My first handful of times facing the Mystic Forge One Ring Karn the Great Creator deck, in my mind I was like, okay, this is my plan against Stompy decks, and I just did it. And it wasn't until my fourth or fifth match where I was like, I have nothing to abrupt decay against these decks. Like, yeah, they have Grim Monoliths or whatever, but there, there's no Chalice of the Voids, there's no Trinospheres, those are combo decks. As, as a frequent Stompy player myself, I think I gain a lot of percentage points by people not evaluating the matchup properly. Because a, a lot of times these Stompy decks are a little weird, a little fringe, especially when you get into some of the stuff like Green Stompy that just doesn't see a lot of play. And sometimes people don't evaluate what you are actually doing well and they overly board for the lock pieces or overly board for the creatures and leave themselves with not a good set of options versus the whole deck 
Yeah, it's really hard to board for those decks. Like as the the fair blue deck, I guess it's easier in the prismatic ending leyline binding world than it used to be. But I do weird stuff where it's like I want like three sorts to plowshares because it's really good if they're on a turn one goblin, but really bad if they lead on chalice. And it, you just have these weird numbers of cards that I really wish I could just commit to one thing and be very good at it. All right, let's talk just briefly about mana before we start going into different types of Stompy deck lists. I think the singular most important thing to understand about a Stompy deck list is that its mana base is innately bad, even if it is a monocolored Stompy deck list. By putting, at minimum, four Ancient Tomb, four City of Traders into your mana base, you make your mana base feel like it is a two-color deck innately one of your lands disappears one of your land hurts you for two mana or sorry for two damage every time you tap it wasteland is going to be very good against these deck lists and if you are playing a multicolor stompy deck list like it is a mess in your mana base and you can further push your mana base with things like cavern of souls or urza saga but that makes it harder to cast your things that have true colored pips one thing to note here is that sometimes these decks do play additional mana sources. We've talked about Chromox a bunch already. That is the classic enabler with Ancient Tomb. But Simeon Spirit Guide, I feel like, is the glue for a lot of these decks because it offsets the Ancient Tomb, the City of Traders, that sort of thing. And it's why the red Stompy decks have sort of stood the test of time. Alternatively, the green Stompy decks do exist with, like, Elvish Spirit Guide, but the Temple plays out of those decks tends to not be as impactful, and they don't have the prison elements outside of things like choke. Uh, Phil would be the expert here, and he's pushing up his glasses ready to say, well, excuse me, Dino Stompy, but that's my opinion. You don't have to agree with it, Phil. There's this weird thing about Wasteland versus a Stompy deck, though. It is great at dismantling their mana base, if you have time to do it. Let's imagine that your opponent plays a turn one threat. Let's say something like Caves of Chaos Adventurer. Can you actually take your turn one off to wasteland their ancient tomb so that they don't deploy another card? Or do you need to be saving that land or casting a ponder or something so that you can actually answer the card that is in play? And a lot of times the ancient tomb decks get a little bit of a break because you have accelerated something out that your opponent has to answer instead of them being able to just attack your mana base. And something that's super awkward is that you can use your ancient tomb to play a Trenosphere. Well, what happens if your opponent then wastelands your your ancient tomb your sol you might not be casting any spells and you're locked under your own trinosphere like your cards can backfire on you yeah my favorite thing to do against any ancient tomb deck is to waste their ancient tomb while i have any source of damage in play that i just feel like massively favored there like if you're delver on the play and they and you have turn one delver and then they just turn one trinosphere or whatever okay take three wasteland and off we go that is a major cost, but like Phil said, you can't use your turn one to wasteland someone who already has Caves of Chaos Adventure in play. You're dead if you do that. All right. So now what I'm going to try to do is outline the pros and cons of the various colors and flavors of Stompy. Uh, we'll try to move somewhat quickly through this as we want to cover a lot, but there's a surprising amount of nuance to Use Ancient Tomb, cast Big Thing. Let's start with the Moon Stompy decklist. 
In terms of pros, Blood Moon punishes greedy mana bases, and right now we are seeing a lot of 4-5 to five color control deck lists in Legacy, we are seeing a lot of Grixis Delver, Leyline Binding is a thing, Triomes are in play. Blood Moon just wins games on its own if it resolves. It's answerable, but a lot of times the time that you buy is enough with that card. Blood Moon's really good now too because the blue decks have branched into Leyline Binding, uh, even replacing Prismatic Ending with it in decks so they can trigger up the Beanstalk. And let me tell you about Leyline Binding versus Blood Moon. That's not a combo. The Moon Stompy deck is going to be highly aggressive and highly consistent. It is not looking to operate on a lot of mana, so a lot of times Ancient Tomb plus a red source is just enough for you to be fine on that the entire game. And Fable of the Mirror Breaker is what I would actually argue is the glue that holds this decklist together now, because it is a body, and then a second body, and it gives you card selection in a mono-red deck, which is something that you're not usually allowed to do. And it continues to develop your mana if you start pooping out treasures. Yeah, so it can make a lot of the like Ancient Tomb Spirit Guide hands very good. A lot of times you'll end up a little bit short on resources and you're like, okay, which one of these three drops do I want to play? I can only play one. Well, a lot of times the answer is just like, hey, idiot, go play Fable because it lets you cast the next one. Fable also has this thing. It puts the Force of Will opponent in a spot where it's like, this card is really good, but it's not Blood Moon or Goblin Rabblemaster or Caves of Chaos Adventurer. Can I spend my one Force of Will on this card? Frequently, like, you just kind of have to. But also, it's like, if they kept seven, and they have, like, Chromox Ancient Tomb Fable, and it's not, like, an all-in spirit guide on Mulligan to five kind of situation, like, they could easily just go Mountain Caves of Chaos Adventure on the following turn. But if you don't force the thing, it's more likely they do that. And it, it's just, it's a mess. I don't like being put in that position. Now, there are some cons to this deck list. You don't get to gain life. When you do Ancient Tomb into some play, and then your opponent plays a Dragon Rage Chandler and starts attacking you for three on turn two, like, you are going to feel that life loss very, very badly and very quickly. Blue decks have awesome sideboard cards against you. Hydroblast is a one-mana answer to everything in your deck list with the exception of your lock pieces. It hits your moons, it hits your Caves of Chaos Adventures, it hits your Fables, and sometimes Sickos will use Snapcaster Mage to do it again, or use Mystic Sanctuary to put that on top of their deck and do it again. And you can have a pretty big tempo loss because of this card. You invest 4 mana into a Caves of Chaos Adventure, your opponent taps their basic island, Hydroblasts it, you're down a lot. I would just like to note that I consider those people heroes, not Sickos, but... Another thing that I think is a con about this deck is you're a deck that really is like a tempo deck to me. You want to play a Chalice and then play a Rabble Master and sort of kill your opponent before they can stabilize, which is traditionally what the Days Wasteland decks were doing on a different axis. And over the last, you know, handful of years since Modern Horizons 2, these decks have had Fury in addition to back up the Rabble Master to clear the way, make sure that nothing is possibly going to stop these goblins from attacking for lethal. But I think a weird point of contention in these decks is they often mulligan really aggressively for that Chalice of the Void, for that Turn 1 Goblin Rabble Master. And when you're a Chromox deck and a Fury deck, sometimes you end up running on fumes very, very quickly, and that's one of the biggest cons to playing a deck like Moonstompy. Yeah, you, you don't play well from behind. Like, you are looking to have a good turn one through three, 
and limp over the finish line if the game isn't over by then. You don't get to answer the large creatures that your opponent plays. Like, when your opponent has something that is five toughness or larger, like, it is probably around forever. Answering an Uro is tough. And if something puts something weird into play like a Phyrexian Dreadnought, like, good luck. Looking at decklist real quick, I think something that's understated a little bit is that these decks over the last, you know, couple of years have received two tools that I think really pushed them over the edge compared to how they used to be constructed. Shattered Skull Smashing is a part of your mana base, but it is a removal spell in addition to Fury. But the other thing is Den of the Bugbear. Your deck has a lot of ways to use mana past turn three now that didn't exist five plus years ago. And that's sort of why I think Moon Stompy has become a legitimate deck in that time period compared to 2015 2016 i would have looked at you like a meme and you know decks change construction change but moon Stompy has proven the test of time yeah you mentioned another thing which is kind of a con of this deck as well or at least a tension in the deck if you simian spirit guide city of traders blood moon you have one mana to play the game with if you include cool lands like den of the bugbear in your deck and then you blood moon you don't have a den of the bugbear you have a mountain and I've certainly felt the tension when I've played the decks and seen the tension when I play against the decks where they're like, aha, I've resolved a Blood Moon. And I'm like, aha, I have one or two drops in my deck and you don't. And I get to play a little bit more than they do. I don't think I want to go into the weeds here, but I don't necessarily think that Den of the Bugbear is much better than a mountain. That Den of the Bugbear has cost me many game wins in legacy and the number of times that i have activated den of the bugbear i think is not necessarily worth the downside of the card that that card is not free it comes with very real risks uh, is 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 what i'm getting at i don't think that card is just like a strict improvement to the mana base yeah and that lines up with construction as well like if you're topping out like if you're on rabble master and war boss is that the other Rabble Master, and then there's also Squee. Like, you could just play three drops and stop your curve there, where Den of the Bugbear plus Ancient Tomb in either order gets you your untapped things. But if you're trying to play a four drop like Caves of Chaos Adventurer or Big Chandra or something, Ancient Tomb, Mountain, Den coming into play tapped actually time walks you. It also just gets wastelanded. Let's talk about its sister decklist now. Let's talk about the red-white initiative decklist that is going to share a lot of the core. The red-white initiative decklist just has an exceptional average card quality. By dipping into a second color, you just get to play bangers. You have more consistent access to initiative without having to play a card like, say, Blood Boil Sorcerer that is, like, below average legacy power level. You get access to actually remove threats because you gain access to solitude, and you get strong sideboard options because white sideboard cards are, generally speaking, really good. Like, you can sideboard into Swords to Plowshares if you want to take the Chalice of the Voids out of your deck, for example. You know what, Phil? I have a bone to pick here. So as the person that likes playing bad combo decks in this uh, discussion... When you look at the Red-White Initiative deck, they have Chalice of the Void. They have main deck four copies of Archon of Emeria, which you're allowed to live your life however you want. My issue here is that a bunch of these 
perverted people then choose to play mind break trap in their sideboard as if somehow they need that with their archon of Amirias and chalice of the voids and it blows my mind don't you have bad matchups why don't you use those cards to beat those bad matchups instead of just bullying me uh i don't like you people take your mind break traps out they don't make any sense yeah the the conceptual idea is that mind break trap is what allows you to make it to turn one or turn two so that you always win the matchup uh, it, it, it is very much an insurance policy. Uh, it is maybe something that the deck doesn't have to have. Yeah, calling out Archon of Emeria, by the way, I think I've lost more games to that card than I have to Seasoned Dungeoneer as far as objects in the deck that if they resolve on turn one, I'm real mad about. Uh, any deck, like every single legacy deck is affected by Archon of Emeria in some meaningful capacity. There are decks where I can like dress down your initiative creature and then we don't have that anymore or i could sort of supplaster or something but turn one archon of Amiria. my misty rainforest comes into play tapped i fetch my tundra comes into play tapped it's turn three before i could sort of supplaster you and by then you've played two other creatures i hate that play pattern way more than i hate watching the initiative room tick up yeah it's it's dirty when it works there's other times where you do that and then you draw your chrome mocks afterwards and you're like shit this is how i get to four mana I have to take a turn off to play this Chrome Mox so I can play my Caves of Chaos Adventurer. Like, there there are feel-bad moments created by that card as it is symmetrical, but it's legitimately scary, and not just for combo. Yeah, if you do get under it, I have spent a lot of time saying, like, okay, good, that Chrome Mox is their spell for the turn. That means I can blank, or whatever. To talk about a con of this deck list... In my experience, there's a real tension in the mana base where sometimes you open up on, you know, a white initiative creature, but you needed red mana for something. Or you open up on Caves of Chaos Adventure to go get that basic planes to play your turn to Archon, but that means you're giving the combo decks a free turn one. And with a deck like Moonstompy, normally all of your lands cast all of your spells. But with initiative, you have to juggle that red-white mana base. And they're also trying to play things like Caves of... uh, Or Cavern of Souls, I'm sorry. I blanked there for a second. But it's a lot more awkward. And I think something that we've discussed in a previous episode is that Chromox imprinting 4th Aerolingus does a lot of work. Yeah. Like, that card as Fireball is good, the fact that it also imprints under Chrome Mox and vastly improves your mana base just makes it all the sweeter. Another note here with the red-white initiative deck list, you can be playing even more pitch cards than the red versions in some cases. Like if you want to double up on both Fury and Solitude, as well as the normal Chrome Mox. So you can run out of gas while like Fable of the Mirror Breaker does exist to copy your creatures later on in the game. Um, A lot of times the games don't go that long, either literally or practically speaking. A lot of times, like, if you play, say, a turn two Fable, by the time that has flipped around and become active, a lot of times that game is decided before that card advantage actually matters. I don't know that I've ever lost a game to Fable activations that I wasn't losing to the creature that was already in play because I obviously don't have a freaking removal spell because your Fable got to activate So let's say that you don't want to be running the red for some reason, and you want to play a mono-white stompy deck list, you're looking at mono-white initiative. You can have a very strong combo matchup because you will be playing more hate bears and a wider range of them. 
you can build your deck with or without Chalice of the Void, depending on what you're expecting, meaning that you could play main deck Swords to Plowshares even if you wanted. This is a deck that is going to be better versus combo and have some decent flexibility, but I think doing this comes at some big downsides, which is why you don't see a lot of this deck running around. If you start playing things like Thalia, Guardian of Thraben, and Elite Spellbinder, you open yourself up to Orcish Bowmasters, which is still one of the most played cards in Legacy right now. You only get four initiative creatures in your deck list, and you end up playing a lot of high-variance cards. Your Esper Sentinels, your Stoneforge Mystics, Palace Jailers, Boromir. These cards are either insane or absolute crap, depending on what your opponent's hand and play patterns look like. And I find that mono-white initiative games are now very swingy. Now that the card that now that the deck doesn't have access to eight initiative creatures, I just don't feel like it's largely competitive, honestly. Yeah, the X1 suite of creatures is really suspicious in Orcish Bowmaster's metagame. And feel how you'd like about that card. It's uh it's here, and it's one of the most played cards in the format. And in recent weeks, I've played against traditional death and taxes with Bowmaster. And although that's a deck that does not draw cards, just uh, raise the alarm plus gutshot is actually an insane double mode card that you can play in that matchup. Uh, I played against traditional goblins with like lackeys and stuff. That's dead, and I have two blockers. And anything you can do to get out of that space as a deck builder is probably worth doing, especially since we're going over a bunch of options of versions of this deck that just don't do that. The next deck I'm actually pretty excited about, Green Red Initiative. So I talked about how much I like Simeon Spirit Guide and then Elvish Spirit Guide. This deck actually gets to play both at accelerating into your initiative creatures. And you do have Undermountain Adventure on top of Case of Chaos Adventure. So just for like Red White Initiative, you have eight initiative creatures, but you gain eight spirit guides, which means you can cast these cards more consistently on the first turn. And you get access to Minskin Boo. So Phil, why wouldn't you play this deck? It just seems so sweet to me. But more people like Red White Initiative. What's the deal? The deck has the obvious plus of being like the fastest initiative deck like this is going to be the best one at just pumping out a creature on turn one but most of the downsides of it actually have to do with mana your mana base is pretty bad you're trying to play cavernous souls to make your initiative creatures uncounterable but you're also trying to get literal actual red green for minskin boo you're playing eight spirit guides in your deck list which means you're playing four fewer threats than a lot of these other decks meaning it is pretty easy for you to run out of gas. Like, the deck is very good at going all in on a first play, but sometimes if that gets disrupted, you just kind of awkwardly sit there for a while. Also, I think a strike against this deck's existence is the existence of the Cascade Teamer Rhinos deck, which is also an 8-spirit guide deck that tries to do something above a uh, higher mana than it's supposed to it's also a turbo minskin boot deck but then it gets force of will lore and revealed brazen bar or fire ice like meaningful interaction you don't have the initiative but you can put 10 power into play on turn one with force of will backup so what are we doing here if we don't have all the hate bears that white offers or uh, like you can't blood moon with this deck because that turns off 
your bad mana base that was already bad. I have a question. So hypothetically, I'm a dirty Chalice of the Void player, and I'm looking to play in an Eternal Weekend near you. Moloch is a card that exists in paper, but not on Magic Online. Does Moloch change the equation with having less gas and not top decking well? Because it gives your deck built-in removal. That's also a huge threat to cantrips. So is this literally everything the deck needs, but it's just not on Magic Online? I'm going to start by reading this card for our audience, because if you're just a Magic Online player, you might not know this one. So it is red-green X for a 2-2 Tyranid creature with Ravenous. This creature enters the battlefield with X plus 1 plus 1 counters on it, and then if X is 5 or more, you draw a card when it enters. Then, when Moloch ETBs, it fights up to one target creature and opponent controls. If it would die, it goes to exile instead. So, when you flood out, Moloch, let's say you can cast it for that X equals 5, can be a 7-7 that draws a card and fights a creature. Or in the early game, this can just be 3 mana, kill a creature. 2 mana, kill a creature. Like, that is good, and it is extra removal that this deck currently does not have access to. I'm not going to say that this solves every single problem that the deck has, but I do very strongly believe that as soon as this card is legal, we will see an up... well, is available on Magic Online, we will see a big uptick in people trying out this archetype. I shouted out Colorless Eldrazi aggro earlier in the episode, and Endless One was a part of that deck that helped mitigate flooding. It existed wherever you needed it on the curve, whether you need a 2-2 on turn 1 or a 6-6 on turn 4. Endless One did all that. It didn't kill a creature when it came into play, and it never cantripped, and it was still just exactly what you needed whenever you needed it. Endless One had a little bit of extra synergy, like you can play four 2-2s on turn 1 with a single Ayavugan, which doesn't work with Moloch, and you do need the red-green to get it going, the same as Minskin Boo. That curve filler, wherever you need it. And it's no fourth Aerolingus, but it is occupying a similar spot. And also, pretty happy to put that under a Chrome Mox. Just imagine the fear that you'll get when someone goes, Cavern of Souls, named Tyranid. Alright, the next deck is one that you are probably not going to see in any truly competitive event, but one that, like, sickos like me enjoy playing, because it's just fun. And that is Mono Green Stompy. Um, aka Sylvan Plug to the older legacy fans out there. Alright, so a mono green stompy deck list is essentially a metagame call that says, I would like to win versus blue decks. Because you get to play uncounterable creatures like shifting ceratops, uncounterable larger dinosaurs than that. Uh, what's the six mana one? Carnage Tyrant. Carnage Tyrant, thank you. And you get very strong, narrow answers to blue decks, like Carpet of Flowers and Choke. The noticeable downside is that you're playing a mono green deck in Legacy, which means you don't have good removal, so you're probably playing Dismember in your Ancient Tomb deck list. You're bad at answering a lot of permanent types, and when you don't get paired against a blue deck, like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you have just shown up to the wrong matchup, and you're going to have a bunch of dead cards, especially if you're just, like, gunning for people with Game 1 Choke or Carpet of Flowers. This deck sounds awful, and not just because I generally play blue decks, but just genuinely terrible. Yep, it is a bad deck that is very, very, very fun when it works. 
So let's stop talking about that because we're largely trying to keep this episode competitive minded. Yep, that was a nice diversion from decks that are real. All right, so let's talk about mono black, air quotes, Stompy. Uh, And the first thing that I want to say is I think mono black Stompy is dead in Legacy. And I want to clarify what I mean. For a long time, we have heard Bryant shit on Dark Ritual into Chalice of the Void because those two cards are like at odds with each other, right? Well, in good news, that strategy is leaving Legacy because people are forking the mono black Stompy deck in two different directions, which aren't Stompy anymore. There is now a move towards an aggro version of the deck list that is going to be playing more creatures. It'll play the Scam Package, Orcish Bowmasters, Douthy Voidwalker, or there's another version that is gearing towards Beseech the Mirror combo with Leyline of Obedience, or sorry, Leyline of the Void and Helm of Obedience combo. So the deck is not existing in this awkward stompy ground anymore, which is good. Dark Ritual doesn't work with Chalice of the Void. Ancient Tomb does not produce black black pips for things like Dalthy Voidwalker. Now this deck actually has enough cards that it can be built properly without a lot of that tension. I would like to say that I have faced versions that both run Beseech the Mirror and Leyline of the Void, but also have Dothy Voidwalker, Orcish Bowmaster's Opposition Agent, and those three prison creatures that I just mentioned are what still makes it a stompy deck in my mind. It might not necessarily be Dark Ritual and a Chalice of the Void, even though some lists do play Chalice of the Void in the sideboard. They are still doing the same thing that the Mono Red Moon Stompy variants are doing, which is Disruption Element plus Fast Clock, and the Fast Clock sometimes is... Leyline of the Void plus Helm of Obedience or just Opposition Agent Dothy or whatever it is. They still have that disruptive element plus Glock. Yeah, I think that rather than like Trinisphere into Season Dungeoneer as Squeeze Piece plus Wincon, we're talking more about an Archon of Amiria situation where the Squeeze Piece is also a Wincon, where your Dothy Voidwalker Opposition Agent You have to respect those things while your opponent's also assembling Helm of Obedience behind you or behind that. Even if it's not in the main deck, a lot of them will juke onto that in the sideboard. And it's like, okay, I got to be the Beseech the Mirror deck. I'm boarding out all my plows. And then your opponent just has a, a turn one opposition agent and you can't remove it ever. And then they never even try to combo you. So like the... The ghost of Stompy is still living within this shell. Last episode, we talked about a lot about like the blue black scam deck list and how like you might confuse it with Death Shadow. These decks exist along a little bit of a spectrum, but generally speaking, the aggro version of the deck list is probably dropping Ancient Tomb and is probably dropping Chalice as well. You'll have a higher density of creatures, maybe around 20 creatures, as opposed to maybe closer to 15 that the Beseech the Mirror version might be playing. And the Beseech the Mirror version usually drops the whole scam package of Troll plus Grief plus Reanimate. But again, people are futzing with these deck lists a lot, so don't take anything as absolutes here. 
the spooky part is that the the infrastructure's there. Like if your opponent has like Chrome Mox Ancient Tomb, Chrome Mox Exiles a Black Card, you could be against any of these things and you won't know until it's too late in some cases. And then they could sideboard onto the other thing. And that's super annoying as the person who just doesn't want my opponent to do what they want to do. It's harder to stop when I don't know what they want to do. Phil, there's another category of snoppy decks, right? Like if we go back to a couple years ago, there was a card that Brian Koval absolutely loves. Urza, Lord High, Artificer. I'm making up card names at this point. No, that was the, the correct name. You did it. Woo! We got there. Plus, Card in the Great Creator. That was a deck that looked to accelerate into those cards along with, like, Narsa and Echo of Aeons. And I feel like that deck sort of shifted to 8-cast. And obviously, you could still play the Karn Urza deck if you so choose, but it's not very popular anymore. Is the 8-cast deck in the Stompy family, or is it an outcast? Well, I, I feel like if we, we do, like, taxonomy and we go into the whole, like, Kingdom Phylum class order family genus species, like, we're, we're still definitely in the same taxonomic ballpark, but it doesn't quite feel like Stompy to me. Like, when we talk about 8-cast specifically, its play patterns are totally different than every other deck that we've referred to up to this point. Because it's looking to draw cards, and it's looking to interact on the stack, which is something that, like, these above deck lists are just commonly not really doing. I think that's because they can't, not because they don't want to, or that... Because going all the way back to the top of the episode where the Stompy name was taken from land grant decks and given to Ancient Tomb decks, that was a Force of Will deck. That was Sea Stompy with Sea Drake. And getting up under your opponent with a three drop and then holding back on free counter magic. I have not thought about it like this before. In my brain, it was not it. But based on the, the criteria we've laid out in this episode, I would absolutely call 8-cast a Stompy deck. Just fair and square right in there with Moon Stompy. So I feel like when you build it with like Patchwork Automaton, I feel like those ones are Stompy. Because I feel like you are committing to that early game threat more frequently. But I feel like 8-cast a lot of times is just like sitting back, is accruing card advantage, activating Emery's, playing this slower Urza Saga game. The play patterns feel very different to me. And like, I think this is one of those times where it's not worth a ton of emotional and mental energy trying to like split the the hairs of like, oh, is this or isn't this stompy? Like, I feel like you can acknowledge like, yeah, this shares a lot of similarities with what we're talking about above. Yeah, from the sit back and move your pieces around kind of game plan, it feels like painter. But from the main deck chalice of the void and big threats before you're supposed to have the mangle, it feels like stompy. So it does kind of exist in a space between painter and stompy, where I'm quite confident in my brain painter is not a stompy deck as we discussed. And sometimes Acast is even a painter deck. So uh, the the beams are crossing here. And I agree with Phil that it doesn't actually matter how we define this as long as we understand how to play against it. I feel like it's a deck that can have stompy hands, but very frequently doesn't. Like sometimes you just crap a turn two Kappa Cannoneer into play, you know, protect it with a force of will. Your turn one was Chalice of the Void. Like, yeah, that was a stompy game. But I feel like 8-cast on average is 
grinding games out and playing an attrition game that most of these others aren't. So, uh, so I, I know this doesn't matter, but I'm thinking about games where like my opponent has turn one season Dungeoneer and I swords to plowshares it and then they have the initiative tick, tick, tick every turn. That's a grindy situation that feels a lot like they stuck their turn one Emery and I'm fending off everything else, but they're still just like tick, tick, ticking in the background. It doesn't matter, but my brain is uh, firing on all sorts of uh, this feels like this, even though this isn't this kind of levels here. Let's pretend I'm someone that's really interested in this episode because I'm looking forward to Eternal Weekend, but I'm on a budget. And sometimes these Stompy decks are chosen for budget purposes. When you look at the black Stompy deck, and Phil, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure there are no reserveless cards. Am I correct? I think that's correct. The only one that these decks would play is City of Traders. If I'm someone looking to play this episode and City of Traders may or may not be a concern, am I pigeonholed into running Mono Black Stompy at Eternal Weekend? Or is there a greater range of decks I can play based on the amount of City of Traders that are like, would you play Moon Stompy if you only had access to zero or two City of Traders? Or would you rather play Black Stompy? Give us the deets. So if you don't have access to City of Traders, Playing the aggressive version of Mono Black Stompy is probably the best thing that is going to be available in your budgetary range. I think most of the other decks here really need City of Traders in order to function. 8cast has zero reserveless cards in the, the whole deck. If we're counting 8cast as Stompy, or at least in this category, I think 8-cast stock has dropped significantly with the existence of Orcish Bowmaster because it is a creature deck that's trying to draw lots of cards where Orcish Bowmaster kills lots of creatures when you draw lots of cards. That's kind of a tough beat, but that's why it's sort of leaned forward into Patchwork Automaton and become more stompy aggro than it was kind of artifact control six months ago. Uh, Death and Taxes and 8-cast are the decks that I point new players to as containing zero reserveless cards if that is the hurdle for you but all of these decks are just two to four city of traders away from being reserveless free i am also hesitant to recommend the mono black deck to people who aren't already playing it because i feel like that deck is heavily in flux and is changing a lot and there's a lot of similar builds like builds that you know are maybe 50 of the same main deck cards the same but changing those last couple of cards really changes your outs to stuff i don't know that i would just say like oh you're on a budget this is the perfect deck for you like some people like michael levine have had a lot of success with the the archetype i've done relatively well with it on my channel i don't know that it's the most consistent thing to hand to someone who is maybe newer to the format yeah, newer to the format, uh, eight cast makes a lot of sense. It, it flexes a lot of muscles. If you have any sort of popper background, or even modern has had eras where thought monitor is a card you want to cast. Uh, if you're a, a geezer and you played affinity when it was standard legal or extended legal, uh, you're going to feel a lot of comfortable muscles with the eight cast deck. I think that's super approachable and relatively affordable. I feel like Moon Stompy and Red White Initiative are pretty easy to pick up and play 
at roughly 80% of their their power level. Like there's a lot going on in mulligans and your first two turns and like you will lose games for missequencing things for sure. The raw power of the deck can carry you pretty far. Uh, one, one thing to think about, like, do you want to play a roughly 11 round tournament with your ancient tomb deck list? Cantrips are a very big safety net in Legacy. They let you smooth out a lot of variants. And you have to be really comfortable with your mulligans and matchup approaches to say, like, yes, I am here for Moonstompy this weekend, and to be right about that. 